0: That's such a vibey song, isn't it? Like, I wish I could dance, because if I could dance, I would dance to that song. Hey, welcome, everybody. Um, song of Songs. So, here's what I got for you today. Y'all ready? Two, not just one, two mini sermons. So, here's what I'm going to do for you. You're like, oh, <laughs> it's funny. Normally, you get two of something, and people are excited. Two sermons, you're like, oh, great. Now, they're going to be quick. I promise you we're going to jump through it, but let me explain why. So last week, Austin did a phenomenal job of kind of giving us an introduction to our entire series. Uh, One of the things that he said that I I think is so good and worth repeating is that sex is a symbol that points to something beyond, okay? It's a symbol that points to something beyond, namely uh, our oneness with God, all right? What I want to do this morning is I'm going to give you a really quick summary of the Song of Songs, and then why it matters today. Uh, A little bit of this, we'll just kind of repeat, kind of, what Austin said, because repetition is the mother of learning. And quite honestly, in the church, the church often gets a bad rap of how we talk about sex and sexuality. Uh, Often that we kind of shy away from it, or we talk about it in a way that's not helpful. And so I want to make sure that uh, our church is treating it correctly. And that's why I think that getting an overview of Song of Songs, a summary, if you will, and then why it matters today, why it matters in the canon of Scripture is so important. So y'all ready for this? This one's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to dive through it pretty quickly. Uh, It really comes from a dude named Ian Proven. Dr. Proven is an Old Testament scholar, but specifically uh, has expertise in Song of Songs. And uh, what he has to say is really, really valuable. So he starts off by saying, in summary, what we appear to have in the Song of Songs is a dramatic composition. Remember, Austin talked about this, this is like a, some love poems that have kind of been pulled together to then actually craft a story for us. He says, that is of uncertain date in authorship. In other words, we're not really sure who wrote it, and we're not even 100% sure when it was written, just simply probably uh, somewhere uh, around the time of Solomon a little bit after. All right, And he says, what it does is it sets before us for our consideration two different kinds of male-female relationships. The first, which occupies most of the attention of the song, is that manner of relationship in which a woman and a man enter freely into love and sexual intimacy, binding themselves in lasting commitment to each other and giving themselves to each other physically and emotionally in joyful abandonment that knows no reservation or shame. That's the first relationship that is discussed. The second kind of relationship, which lurks in the background of Song of Songs and occasionally has the spotlight shined on it, places the male in a dominant and powerful position over the female, such that she does not enter the relationship by choice but is only the pawn in a male game that has to do with legal contracts, money, and the collection of objects of pleasure. It's the first kind of relationship that equal relationship between a man and a woman, where they enter freely into this love, that actually is exalted by the Song of Songs. All right, this is underlined by the fact that the woman does most of the speaking in it and takes by far the greater part of the initiative in her relationship with the man. The second kind of relationship, where men are in the dominant and powerful position over women, the song seeks to show is neither from God nor God's desire for how we relate to one another. It's important that we understand this within the Song of Songs. Now, whether we understand the Song of Songs literally or allegorically, Austin talked a little bit about that last week. Uh, We believe that it's generally written in a way that we're supposed to interpret literally, but that there are also some allegorical ways that we can see it as metaphor between God and us, God and the church. Either way we read it, Song of Songs undermines a hierarchical view of the reality that men and women often find themselves in, where men in their power and coercion relegate women to something less than. The Song of Songs is very strongly, especially in that culture, showing that that is not from God. So, bound up with all this dysfunctionality of relationship in the modern, as well as in ancient times. Is sexual activity now? Sexual activity is from God. It's a blessing from God that's supposed to symbolize, in a profound way, the self-giving love that a husband and a wife have in their relationship. However, it has often come instead to symbolize all that is cursed about that relationship. A truly countercultural church would, at this point, confront with balanced biblical teaching on sexual expression, both the modern society, which often idolizes sex, and the Christian tradition that has often demonized sex and would seek to proclaim and live the truth that God made this world as a good place and redeemed this same world in Christ. Friends, we want to be a truly countercultural church. This is why we're not shying away from engaging with this important book. It is one book that talks about very explicitly at times uh, sexual expression between a man and a woman. However, uh, it's only one book, okay? So we're not going to overemphasize it, but we also have to be reminded that this is intended to teach us. It's intended to help shape our understanding of what it means to be human. Many within the church have thought the Bible represses our humanity instead of actually expressing our humanity. The collateral damage caused by this attempt, Proven says, to use the Christian faith to repress important aspects of our humanity is huge because if faith and humanness are set in conflict with each other, in other words, if my faith and my humanity are somehow in conflict with one another, sooner or later a human being will find the attempt to manage the conflict intolerable and will always choose humanness. Why? (laughs) Because that's what we are. God created us, designed us as human beings. And if faith and humanity are somehow at odds, we have to choose our humanity. The good news is faith and humanity are not at odds, even though at times within the Christian tradition we have made it seem like they are. He says this, Christians are called, therefore, to proclaim a resounding yes to sexual expression. It's part of our humanity. In the context, he says, of a resounding yes to God. The Christian yes to sex, as joyous as it should be, is thus always a yes in a context defined by the good God who made all things and knows what is best for his creatures. Sex is for the building of a lifelong, committed, and intimate relationship between one man and one woman in which complete self-giving is possible. The only appropriate Christian response to our culture is to pursue the calling God has placed on our life undeterred to live out that life that Jesus has redeemed for us. We will not shy away from our humanity. Our humanity is good. Our humanity is God-given and God-designed and all the beautiful blessings that come from it, we want to celebrate. But we will also recognize that God as the designer and creator has designed us with intention. And therefore, we will trust that not only is God good in the midst of a fallen and broken, difficult world, a world that affects each and every single one of our sexuality, we will not only trust his goodness in the midst of that, but we will pursue to live out the calling that he's placed on our lives. End of sermon one. Now, With that in mind, I'd like to push into Song of Songs chapter one. I think there is one important point that God wants to point out that will have some very specific applications. Ready? I'm going to start with a question. The most important sexual organ is not found between your legs, but between what? Turn to the person next to you and tell them what you think it is. Some students are having the most awkward conversation they've had with their parents in months. This is what we live for, trying to create awkward conversations. All right. The most important sexual organ is not found between your legs, but between your ears. Very good. Very, very good. And we're actually going to see this in the text that we read today, all right? What we're seeing is the discussion between two lovers... Song of Songs kind of opens up with kind of this idea of a a wedding ceremony, and now we are a part of the conversations that are happening between these two lovers as they move towards the wedding night. Now, commentators are a little, uh, they they kind of disagree on exactly when that consummation of the relationship begins within the Song of Songs, but it's definitely being talked about in multiple times at multiple places. But right here in chapter one, there's this conversation that's taking place post- Wedding ceremony, pre-wedding night. And this is what we kind of enter into. Now, there's kind of three movements in the text that I want to highlight, and we'll see them as we move through it. Uh, The first is the woman's insecurity of her body. In this particular text, she's sharing some things that she's insecure of. Then we have her lover's response, and then we have the outcome based on that response. So let's look together. We're going to start... In chapter 1, verse 5, it's the female who's speaking, and she says this, "'Dark am I, yet lovely. Daughters of Jerusalem, I'm dark like the tents of Kadar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard, my body, I had to neglect.'" Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? And then the friends say to her, If you do not know most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. We start off and we see that this young woman is insecure about her body. Uh, She's moving towards the wedding night with the one she loves. And they have obviously built a kind of relationship where she feels at least secure enough in sharing her insecurity. Now, her insecurity actually comes because, I don't remember if I said anything yet, but in this society, uh, women were often seen not as equal partners with men. Uh, They were actually seen as uh, often something to be bartered for, uh, a possession that one might have. And In this particular scenario, and that's not what God desires, nor what God commands, okay? Let's be clear about that. But that is how it was at the time, and in this particular scenario, her brothers were angry with her. Being a Middle Eastern woman, um, she was made by her brothers to go and work in the vineyards, which meant that she was under the sun, all right? Uh, Most young women at the time would have been kept back in the tents, they would have avoided the sun as much as they could because being out in the sun would make you very tan. She talks about that. She's gotten really, really tan because she had to work outside. And when you're really, really tan because you're working outside, that would uh, basically mean that you're poor or of a lower class or you've done something uh, to anger someone that's making you do this. And, and therefore it was kind of looked down upon. And so as a result, she feels like she stands out. She doesn't match up to the societal standards of beauty that have been put around. And so she feels insecure about her body. There's enough security within the relationship that she's at least uh, willing to acknowledge it. Uh, She mentions, please don't look at me because of my body. I feel insecure about it, but she's looking for her lover. She's looking for him because she wants to graze her young goats uh, near his. Now, she mentions, though, she doesn't want to be like a veiled woman. All right, that's just an an illusion, a metaphor for someone who was a prostitute. You see, it wouldn't have been uh, socially acceptable for her to be out grazing her animals around all the other shepherds who would have all been men. Uh, That would have made her look like a prostitute. That was kind of a socially uh, unconventional for, for her to do. However, because of her insecurity, she wants to be close to the one who makes her feel secure. So she needs to be by him because she hopes that just being in his very presence is actually going to be the thing that makes her feel good about herself. Now, in this moment, she begins to share some of these ideas she has about why she doesn't feel great about her body. And then she's letting letting herself be vulnerable Vulnerability requires honesty and also requires you to open yourself up to potentially being hurt. And so in this moment, everything rests on what her lover is going to say, how he's going to respond to her. You ever feel like maybe you don't match up to the standards of beauty that are set by our culture? In this particular scenario, it's a, It's a female talking about it, but it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man. In our Instagram, Photoshopped, airbrushed culture where everybody's getting like the best perfect pictures of themselves and dropping it in there, they're just, you know, just right, none of us feel like we own up to, live up to the standards of beauty. And what's interesting is standards of beauty, they change from place to place. Uh, It's funny, uh, Brenda's mom is Filipino. She grew up in the Philippines. And in the Philippines, along with a lot of other Asian countries, uh, women don't like to be in the sun. They don't want to get tan. And that's exactly how Brenda's mom grew up. In fact, if you were in the sun and you were tan, uh, that probably meant that you were poor. You had to work out in the sun. And and so it was kind of like socially unacceptable. And so Brenda's mom would avoid the sun at all costs. Uh, If she happened to be in the sun, though, she would go home. She would uh, cut up some lemons, squeeze out the juice, and then rub lemon juice all over her arms and legs to try to bleach away whatever sun she got. Uh, when Brenda was growing up in Philadelphia, she loved to go to the Jersey Shore to lay out in the sun and get a tan. Like that was one of her favorite things. Her mom could not understand it, right? No, we do everything we can to not get tan. And Brenda's out there getting, like I used to go to tanning booths when I was in high school. I had probably a little too much information, I understand. But like that's the culture we live in, right? Getting a tan is like a good thing. And Brenda could get an awesome tan. She loved it. I always loved when Brenda would get a tan. Like, it's a great thing. Her mom never understood it. Why? Different ideas of beauty. There's all kinds of different standards of beauty. They vary from culture to culture. Uh, I I was looking up like, all right, what are some different standards of, of, of beauty? In Bali, women with large feet and pointy teeth are considered beautiful. You see how her teeth are filed? They still do that to this day. It's called teeth filing. Not everybody in Bali, but a number of women still actually do this. Uh, In Mauritania, short, plump women were considered beautiful. In fact, less than half a century ago, they would send their young daughters to what they called fat farms. True story, not even kidding. And they would just feed them super high-calorie foods to try to plump them up so that when they returned home, they would be more beautiful and more desirous to the men of the community. Uh, in some African tribes, feminine beauty is actually shown with really short hair and elongated earlobes. There's another tribe in Ethiopia that they have a six-month uh, um, contest to see how much weight a man can gain. All right, I would crush in that culture. I'm just telling how that guy would be so stinking hot if I lived there. I'm, I don't, though. Uh, some countries, it's long necks. Other countries, it's actually the, the size of kind of wooden plate um, that you might have, like all these different forms of beauty. We look at it and say, ah, that, but like that's all there. You know what? Every single culture with all the different types of beauty, expectations, societal pressures that they put on leaves you and I and every other single human being at times feeling insecure. Ladies, I know you feel this. My wife who is, I think, stunningly attractive at times feels like I don't measure up. How can I look like that? I felt those same things. Do I have enough muscles? Am I tall enough, right? Am I too thin? Am I not thin enough? Do I have enough hair? (laughs) Do I have too much hair? We all ask those questions. And we wonder, I don't live up, right, to the eternal 22-year-old that's Photoshopped and airbrushed and perfectly posed and then placed all over the internet. And this is exactly what's happening in our text. She's insecure about who she is, and she's moving towards the wedding night, and she's trusting her lover enough to be vulnerable and share these things. How he responds in that moment will determine how the rest of the night will go. Let's keep reading. Look with me in verse 9. He says to her, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses, which is kind of an interesting thing to say, right? I mean, it's kind of like something like, baby, you are just like the Budweiser Clydesdales or something like like that. I Don't use that, dudes, all right, if you're thinking about it. But I think there's something that even though it's not maybe our culture, we kind of see, right? uh, Pharaoh's chariot horses were like the best the most outstanding, he's saying you're you're special, you're beautiful, you're strong, you are are set apart for something important. He goes on, he says, your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. And then drop down to verse 15, he continues, he says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful, your eyes are Our doves. She shares a vulnerability that she's not feeling super confident about her body. And in that space of vulnerability and insecurity, he lays on top security, compassionate and passionate language of love, telling her how beautiful he believes that she is and how special she actually is. And that allows her to respond to him. Look what she says in verse 12. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms. Uh, Myrrh and henna blossoms are both a perfume from the vineyards of Engedi. she says. And what she's saying in that moment is the words that my lover is speaking over me are a beautiful smell. It's something that draws me towards him. Because while I share my insecurity, instead of simply dismissing it or actually piling on, he instead offers security in his words, and that draws me in even more. In fact, after what he says in verse 15, she responds then in verse 16, how handsome you are, my beloved. Now, I'm sure he was probably physically handsome, But the words that he's speaking to her make him way more handsome than physically he ever could be, right? Because she's being drawn in in this time of insecurity. He comes and lavishes love and praise, compassionate language over her, reassuring her of his care and how he finds her beautiful. And that makes him even more attractive, more beautiful to her. How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. The word verdant means like green, fresh, alive, truthful. Yeah, you see, in her insecurity, he shares words that make her feel secure. There's something powerful when that happens. Um, there's a quote that I, I, I love sex is not just physical. It's an act of the soul. Uh, You see, how we feel about our body plays a huge role in the bedroom. And he understands that. He knows that sex isn't simply a physical act. He understands that uh, great things happen in the bedroom when greater things are happening outside of it. And so he meets her insecurity with love and compassion he does this again in actually verse, uh, no, sorry, verses one and two of chapter two. Let's just keep reading there. Verse seventeen, he says, "The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs." Chapter two, verse one, she says, "I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys." That's like saying I'm just an average, per- I'm just an average girl. I'm like one of a thousand flowers out there. These are the kind of flowers that just would have kind of blanketed the countryside, pretty but like. There's a whole bunch of them. And look what he says to her, right? She's already like starting to feel more secure in the relationship, but she still has a little bit of like, ah, but I'm just like, I'm just like, there's a a thousand of me. Look what he says. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. In other words, you're the only flower I see. Everything else is a thorn. And there's this beauty and power that comes as he lavishes her with his love. Her insecurity begins to fade away. Why? Because he understands that great things happen in the bedroom when greater things are happening outside of it. It's probably the raciest title for a message we have in this series, verbal foreplay. But that's exactly what's going on here. He understands how he interacts with her, how he treats her. Now, in this particular scenario, it happens to be a female who is feeling insecure about her body but we could replay this a thousand times over with a man being insecure about his and how is the female going to make him feel secure. We both need that. All of us do. How we interact with one another is huge. Um, I will say I don't always do this perfectly with uh, Brenda, my wife. Uh, My wife, one of her love languages is physical touch. Uh, It is like one of the lowest on my love language. I'm a gifts love language, which feels like the most non Christian, right? Love language that you can have. So for Brenda, she's like, uh, she likes to like snuggle, hold hands, or like, you know, shimmy up close while we're watching a movie. And I'm always like, babe, like you're so hot. Like, and like, good looking, yes, but I mean like physically, like you're just hot right now. And I'm always hot, and she's always cold, at least she always feels cold. Uh, but not to me. She feels like a furnace. And she just wants to like snuggle up close, you know, and I'm always like, oh. And she's like, yeah, it's, I, like it's my love language is like physical. And I'm like, that's why I gave you four kids. Go snuggle with them. Like that's, which is probably not a good move on my part. I'm just like acknowledging that. So uh, sometimes she'll be feeling a little insecure. Not because of anything in particular, right? But there are just times in life when all of us feel a little insecure. And so one of the ways that helps her feel secure is when she has me kind of just put my arm around her, holding her, letting her be close. And there's times in that moment where she, in vulnerability, in need, comes towards me and I'm kind of like, ah, not right now. In fact, it's, I, w- I knew I was preaching this. I, the message was written. I kind of practiced due to my head. Last night, no joke, I'm putting the kids to bed. I'm sitting on the stairs. Uh, she comes down and is talking to me real briefly and we're about to go back upstairs and she puts her hand out just for me to like hold her hand and I just walked right past her. (laughs) I'm so bad. I can't even believe I'm telling you this. No, 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 no. I wasn't like... purposely like, just like, get out of here. But I was just like, all right, we'll like, like hold hands upstairs. And, I, and then I thought to myself, I'm gonna have to talk about this tomorrow. So I literally stopped, turned around, walked back down two stairs, grabbed her hand and walked upstairs with her. Now you know why I did that, baby. Because I was gonna talk about it today, because I knew I was gonna be such a jerk. Look, when she, Brenda, moves towards me in that moment, I have the opportunity to either show her with my words, with my actions, that she is safe and secure with me. Or I can push her aside. What if the man here comes back after she says, don't look at me, I'm dark, I'm feeling a little insecure. And he says, get over it already. You don't see me complaining about being in the sun? Look, winter's coming, like your tan will fade. No. If he would said that to her, like what would have happened? Not a whole lot in the bedroom, I can promise you that. Okay. When we meet one another in that place of love and compassion and we cover that insecurity, whether you're a guy or a girl, there is something powerful that begins to happen. Great things happen in the bedroom and greater things are happening outside of them. Now, uh, I want to give you an application as we close. So um, up on the screen, there is Sternberg's triangle theory of love, okay? Okay. Robert Sternberg, a pretty famous psychologist. If you were a psych major in college, guarantee you would have studied this at some point. There's basically three areas, three points of the triangle. Bottom left is passion, bottom right is commitment, and the top is intimacy. Okay? Now, when all of these things, passion, intimacy and commitment. When all those three things are working together well, when they're all equally strong, you get what's in the middle, which is consummate love. Intimacy, passion, commitment. That's consummate love, okay? When you only have intimacy and commitment, the right-hand side, you get companionate love. There's no passion, okay? If you have passion and commitment, you get fatuous love, all right? Which means there's no intimacy. You don't really know each other. And you can also have romantic love, which is passion and intimacy, without commitment. The Bible talks about love as the triangle. Consummate love is when all three of those things are working together equally. What we're talking about in Song of Songs, is actually all three of these in different places, but in this particular scenario, we're talking about the passion side, the biological side. She is feeling unsure about herself, And this passion has an opportunity to either be snuffed out or to be encouraged based on what her lover responds with, how he engages with her. And because he meets her insecurity with security... It actually fires up the passion that she feels for him. You can read it as you go through. He says something, she responds by saying, he's like a perfume to me, I'm drawn to him. And then he compliments, says your eyes are like doves and, and she just can't stop gushing. You're so handsome, I, I can't wait to be with you. And he starts talking about like the, the bedroom, the, the, the fir branches and the, the cedar like, beams. And, like, and, and she's like, yeah, but I'm just like a, a lily. I'm just a lily of the valley. He's like, no, 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 you're the only lily. Everything else is a thorn. You see, like, the passion's being built. A lot of times when you see this, passion is the biological side, okay? Commitment is the cognitive side. It's the decision you have to make. Intimacy is the emotional side. When it comes to the passion side, the biological side, I always thought to myself, like, how do you actually grow that? Like, it's either there or it's not there. Like, I can't change how I feel. Baloney. You can, but you have to practice it. So I'm going to give you a couple of ways to practice growing passion, Okay? Now, this actually comes from a book called Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. Doctors Les and Leslie Parrott uh, are the ones that wrote it. And um, they say this, how to grow passion. Number one, practice meaningful touch. You'll get big brownie points even if you just start taking notes right now. Just letting y'all know. Practice meaningful touch, okay? So, key word here is practice. We're not talking about Uh, sexual touch. We're talking about non-sexual touch. Practice meaningful touch. Okay. This could be a little thing like you just, when you uh, uh, walk by, you just put your arm on their shoulder for a second. Okay. could be holding hands. It could be uh, before you leave for work every morning, uh, you give your wife a a little kiss on the lips or a kiss on the cheek, or before you go to bed, Wives, uh, you always rest your uh, head on his shoulder for a minute. It could just be snuggling up while you're watching a movie, all right? Allowing your wife to put her 130-degree legs over your knees while they're sweating, okay? Like, whatever. But practice meaningful touch, all right? The key word there is practice. You know what practice means? Practice means you're not great at it. Practice means you're not perfect at it. You know what? None of us are. That's why we practice. We practice. And the more you practice, the more natural it becomes. If you're like, that's not me, man. I'm not touchy-feely. Or like, oh, I don't like it. It not real." weird. Like, look. <laughs> that was a guy voice that I was imitating. Uh, but no, seriously, like, we have to practice meaningful touch. It matters. I love seeing an old couple that still holds hands. Maybe a, a couple that still holds hands while they pray over their meal. Those are little ways, meaningful touch. The second thing. They say it's planned, mutually enjoyable experiences. What do you both enjoy doing? Okay, what do you both enjoy doing? So if you both enjoy antique shopping, plan, plan being a key word, an excursion to go antique shopping. If you both enjoy going for walks together to talk, plan to go for a walk together. Whatever it is, that mutually enjoyable experience, you both love to go out to eat, you both love sushi, you both love whatever it is. Plan mutually enjoyable experiences. What happens is that begins to develop passion. Begins to grow that biological desire. Number three, compliment your lover daily. Compliments feel good both to the one who gives them and the one who receives them. Sometimes you may be like, ah, like it feels fake. Well, then figure out something you really believe. Okay? And tell your spouse that. Honey, I love how those pants fit you. I don't know why that came out, but that's, that's a legit one. That could be something, okay? Uh, or, honey, I love... <laughs> oh, I'm going to get in so much trouble during this series. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> honey, I love how you parent our kids. I think you're a phenomenal father. I love how you treat me when we're in public. I think your hair looks great. What are you wearing? It smells so nice today. Oh, that's a really cute top on you. All right? Compliment your partner daily. You know what that does? It starts to grow passion. That's exactly what's happening here. He's complimenting her, and she's responding to that. And then the last thing is, give your lover a nickname like Schnookums or Boo Bear or Honey Butter Biscuit and then use it in public frequently. It's right out of the book. I'm just joking. That's I made that one up. But it would be awesome if y'all started saying like Honey Butter Biscuit. That would be pretty. Look, there are ways we can actually grow our passion. Ways that we can meet our struggles with insecurity that all of us have with words and actions that bring security. And that allows us to enjoy our humanity, the blessed, amazing humanity that God designed, created, and gave to us as a gift, our sexuality, because when, uh, excuse me, great things happen in the bedroom when greater things are happening outside of it. Let's pray. Father God, uh, thank you I, so it kind of I know, it feels weird to say thank you for our humanity, but thank you. You designed it, you created it, and you're amazing. And God, all the beautiful and amazing things that you created for us to enjoy, that you blessed us with. God, l- never allow us, never allow us to try to pull those things back. Let us celebrate them appropriately as you design them to be celebrated. But Let us move towards that as we move towards you. God, so that we can show the world that there is a better way, a way that works. God, we know we do it so imperfectly and we are broken people. So God, continue to redeem our hearts, our minds, our bodies. That we might learn how to give them fully and freely to the partner that we have committed ourselves to, to our husband, to our wife. God, let us trust in your goodness, even when it's hard, even when maybe we don't see the end point, that it feels over the horizon. God, let us keep walking towards you in that moment, remembering that even beautiful and amazing gifts that you've given like sex is simply a signpost that points us towards something greater, a oneness with you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your beautiful and powerful name we pray. Amen.